Okay, the next part of Genesis 5. Genesis 5, 21 to 32. Genesis 5, 21. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 21. 21 to 24 is Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then, and we'll speak about Methuselah in a moment. Um, Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch's son, Methuselah, and so forth, they have other sons and daughters, as it says in 22. We've spoken of this fact. Each of these patriarchs, the first nine of these patriarchs, had other sons and daughters. The exception is Noah. Throughout Noah's life, and remember, he lived to be 950 years, according to chapter 9, 29, uh, 9, 28 and 29, to be 950 years. He did not have other sons and daughters besides the ones that are mentioned here. He only had these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's all it says. It does not say he had other sons and daughters throughout his whole life. So he, his, his wife, or, or the, I'm sorry, the wives of his sons must have been from the rest of the people that were on the earth at the time. And furthermore, we should note that there would have been, by the time of Noah and the time of the great flood of Noah, there would have been at least hundreds of millions of people on the earth because of the um, amount of time that they lived, at least these individuals lived this long, and even if every individual did not live this long, there would have been hundreds of millions of people at the very least, if not billions, and if not tens of billions of people on the earth. If not that many, there would have been hundreds of millions of people. Furthermore, the time from the a creation of Adam, or the time of the creation of the world, till the time of the flood, which we read of in Genesis 6, there was 1,656 years. 1,656 years. From the time of Adam, from creation until the flood. 1656. You can compute that, calculate that, from all of these designations or all of these ages of the father when the named son 
is mentioned here in Genesis 5. And when we do so, we have a strict genealogy and can calculate 1,656 years, being the span of time from Adam till the time of the flood in the time of Noah. That long. Now, if it surprises you that we can make the assertion that there were hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on the earth, it shouldn't. Because after all, even for the earth in the last century, 100 to 200 years, there were not 7 billion or 7.5 billion people when you think of how many people lived on the earth 100 years ago or 200 years ago. There were in, it was in the millions. It was in the millions or hundreds of millions um, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It was not in the billions. Now there is in the billions. And only 100 to 200 years have passed. So if they were very fruitful and productive in terms of offspring and they lived for 1656 years mankind did from Adam till the flood it's very yes and they had and they had no organization such as planned parenthood which is actually planned death it's not parenthood it's death so they have they if they don't have those kinds of things being promoted likely there were people doing that but Still, there was this command to reproduce, which we would say the godly patriarchs, they did do that. There would have been many people and plenty of time to have them. Next, in Genesis 5, it says twice in verse 22, then Enoch walked with God. And then it says in verse 24, and Enoch walked with God. Walking with God is in the Bible a way of describing the godly and virtuous life, the redeemed life and sanctified life of the one who is in the right with God, in the right reconciled relationship with God. That's what it means to walk with God. As God came and walked in the garden in Genesis 3, 8, God walked because Adam and Eve refused to walk, right? God walked and came into the garden in order to confront their sin in Genesis 3, verse 8. He came and he walked in the garden when Adam and Eve should have been walking with him. If they had been walking with him, he would not have to walk in confrontation and in judgment. But that's what happened. Yet in this case, Enoch, Enoch was redeemed. He was not always redeemed because Enoch was born into the world as a sinful man. But he was redeemed by God, and he walked with him. He was godly. And it says that he was so godly that he was not, for God took him. He was not, for God took him, took him up, caused him to ascend. Now, when it says he was not, it doesn't mean people lost track of him or they could not find him because he was lost on the earth, or he lost his own way on the earth, that he went into a dense forest and he didn't find his way, or he went on to the sea and somehow he was lost at sea, like that. But then he found himself uh, run ashore on a deserted island, then he lived the rest of his life on that island, and people lost track of him, and he could never recover and go back to his family. That's not what it means, and he was not. 
And he was not means that he disappeared in the sense that God took him away from the earth. That he did not die on the earth. He did not experience a natural, regular human death. He was an exception. Just like in 2 Kings chapter 2, that Elijah, in the presence of Elisha the prophet, was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. He also was not. And they also could not find him in the sense, not that Elijah died, but that he was taken up. Because Elisha saw that with his own eyes, that Elijah was taken up to God. That's the same way in which Enoch was taken up and he was not. This is confirmed for us in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 says this very thing. 11 verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He was pleasing to God. And why? Verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Enoch was taken up, and it tells us that he was taken up three times in Hebrews 11.5. Three times he tells us that. Because there were speculators, there were doubters, there were skeptics who said that Enoch experienced a regular death. It's just that people could not actually see that. They could not actually witness it and bury him, so on and so forth. That's what he is trying to combat. He had skeptics. The author of Hebrews 11, the letter to the Hebrews, he is saying that no, we cannot and should not doubt and speculate and be skeptical of the fact that Enoch was miraculously taken up by God. That's the reason why he was not found. He was not found not because he died a regular physical death. He was not found because God took him up. He did not experience a regular death. It says he should not see death. And, by the way, in Hebrews 9.27 it says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment. Hebrews 9 was written by the Apostle, just as it was written in Hebrews 11.5. The Apostle, we have to grant that he is a man of, of intelligence, common sense. He's brilliant, right? So if he is, then he knew what he meant in chapter 9.27, and he knows what he meant in chapter 11, verse 5. He's saying that the regular course of human events means that men die. That's what he meant in chapter 9, 27. But here he's talking about an exception. That's all he's doing. He's talking about an exception in the case of Enoch. That that's why he was taken up. He did not see death, not found. Not a contradiction, in other words, between 9, 27 and 11, 5. Further... It says that he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Remember, it says in Genesis 5, twice, that he walked with God. Walked with God means he was redeemed, he was sanctified, he was being sanctified, he was living a godly life 
in the face of all of his contemporaries, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom we appear as lights. Enoch appeared as a light. He was not a dark man. He was a light man. He was a man of, of uh, radiance, of brilliance in terms of spiritual things in the midst of all the people around him. Enoch was an exception. Because he was such an exception, that's why God took him up as a reward for what he was before God. And Enoch did not do this because of good works. His good works was, were manifested because of the faith he had. That's what it says in 11.5 and 11.6. By faith Enoch. By faith Enoch. When it says he was pleasing to God, he was not pleasing to God because he lacked faith. He was pleasing to God because he had faith and manifested his faith by his works, his good works. His faith, which is internal, was manifested in fruit or good works, which are external. He was pleasing to God. Verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. We are not to think of Enoch as someone who walked with God as though he did with his own power. He did so with his own ingenuity. He did so with his own will. He was a man who had an, a resolute will to do whatever in the face of whatever he uh, had before him. And he tightened his belt. He reached up with his arms up into heaven and he reached for God. No, that's not what it means. When it says he's ple he was pleasing to God, that's because it was all emanating from faith. Right. And we know faith is a gift of God. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Faith is a gift that God gives to some people. Not to all, but to some. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.2 For not all have faith. Not all have faith. Faith is what some people have. All people do not have it. And if they do have it, it did not originate from themselves. It was the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And furthermore, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And without faith, uh, whatever is not from faith is sin. If it does not come from faith, it is sin. Whatever we do is sin. Romans 14, 23 Whatever is not from faith is sin. Moreover, when it says faith, the faith has content. The faith has an object. What is it that he is believing? What is it that he is putting his faith in? Who is it that he is believing? Amen. Who is the object of Enoch's faith? What is not said in Genesis 5, but is implied? And if you recall from our last study of Genesis 4, 4.26, it was said in Genesis 4.26, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We explained throughout Scripture that that faith, that name of the Lord, the object of faith was the Lord Jesus Christ. Was the Lord Jesus Christ. And for a brief note on that, we would go to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. Romans 10, 9 to 13. 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The first instance of someone calling upon the name of the Lord with that expression, that is in Genesis 4, 26. The name of the Lord that they called upon, according to verse 9, is the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus specifically, they believed in him. Now, we have further evidence of Enoch in particular from Jude. From Jude. Jude 14. Jude 14. And about these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, just as Jude and just as we, we all have ungodliness all around us. Now, what does it say that Enoch did and who he was? Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. If we count the patriarchs in Genesis 5, Enoch is the seventh from Adam. That means we're talking about the Enoch of Genesis 5, 21 to 24. That Enoch, not some other Enoch, such as Enoch, the descendant or son of Cain in Genesis 4. We're not talking about that Enoch. We're talking about this one, nor any other Enoch throughout history. We're talking about the one in Genesis 5. That's clear when he says, in the seventh generation from Adam. What else does Jude tell us? He tells us that Enoch prophesied. He prophesied, which means if he prophesied, Enoch was a prophet. Prophets prophesy, correct? And when prophets prophesy, they do two things with their prophecy. They exhort, and exhortation includes encouragement and admonishment. That is the definition of a prophet when he exhorts. He encourages and he admonishes. Take any of the prophets, for example. Take Isaiah. He has oracles or passages where he encourages the people, and he has other passages where he admonishes or warns the people. He has passages like that. Take any of the prophets that we could speak of. This is what they do. They hold out encouragement, but they also hold out judgment and punishment if we do not obey. Blessings and cursings, in other words. This is what they preach. But then they also preach this from a futuristic or eschatological point of view. They say it's necessary to repent now. It's necessary to believe now because a day is coming, the day of judgment, when everyone will have to hold an account before God. Everyone will be presented before God and will have to give an account of everything and every uh, word they've uh, said, every thought they've had, everything about them on that day of judgment. And if we're not in Christ, there is condemnation. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, there's no judgment on that day, but there will be a judgment of rewards 
for the believers who do not experience condemnation. However, everyone else receives condemnation. So Enoch was prophesying of this eschatological future day. That's why he says, he prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The faithful of every generation, including Enoch, they proclaim the Lord. They believe in the Lord. And they proclaim the Lord to everyone around them. A few of them believe, and the rest of the people continue in ungodliness. They rail against God. They preach uh, or preach and persecute, uh, preach against God and persecute the people of God. And yet a day will come when they will be convicted, when they will be held to account for everything they've said against the Lord. The Lord. So who is this Lord that Enoch preached? In Jude 14. In Jude 14, it is the Lord of Jude 4. Jude 4. For he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. Jude tells us that Enoch was preaching the Lord Jesus. Not only that, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. If the Lord came, speaking of the future in the past tense, as prophets sometimes do, to assure the faithful that what is yet future will definitely occur. That's why they speak in what's known as the prophetic past tense. Prophetic past. It's future, but they use the past tense grammatically to assure us that that future event is solid, it's secure, it will indeed occur. Whether you believe it or not, unbelievers, it will happen. And even believers, when you have doubts, it will happen. So believe it. It's certain. That's why it's in the past. He says, he came with many thousands of his holy ones. Which coming would this be? It could not be the first coming because in the first coming, he has to die and rise again. This must mean the second coming. So if Enoch is preaching the second coming, he must also be preaching the first coming. Otherwise, the second coming makes no sense. The first coming is meant to prepare the people, to provide for the people's redemption and prepare them to anticipate his second coming when he comes in glory and judgment. Glory and judgment, judgment for the world and for salvation in the full for us. That's what Enoch preached. That's what Jude tells us about the Enoch of Genesis 5, which means that Enoch was preaching Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen again for our sins. We need to repent and believe in the gospel to be saved and prepare ourselves for the day of judgment. This is what Enoch preached. This is an, uh, an example of taking a scripture that does not give us all the information or give us all of the obvious conclusions that we should come to right. 
we can consult Hebrews 11, we can consult Jude, and when we consult these other passages, on this same subject, this same person, we find that our faith is unified, our faith is harmonious, that what Enoch preached and believed is the same thing that we preach and believe, based on Scripture interpreting Scripture. And then, lastly, back to him being taken up by God. It says in Genesis 5.24, God took him. The same is what happened to Elijah. Elijah was taken up by God. He was taken up by God. As it says in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 2, 2 Kings 2, and verse 10, 2.10. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it came about as they were going along and talking that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elijah saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his clothes and tore them into pieces, so forth. And then the sons of the prophets want to find him as though he was somewhere else on the earth. But just like Enoch was nowhere else on the earth, in the same way Elijah was nowhere on the earth. Miraculously, in 2 Kings is narrative. It's historical narrative. He, that happened as recorded by the prophet in 2 Kings. So that actually happened. These were two signs or symbols, two types for the people of the Old Testament, the saints of the Old Testament, to anticipate the ascension of Christ, to anticipate the ascension of Christ, that Christ also would ascend to heaven, that he should not experience death again. He would be ascended, like it is, is said in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, 6 to 11, or uh, 4 to 11, it mentions there that Christ ascended. He was taken up, it says. It was, he was taken up, using the same terminology as this passage right here. He was taken up into heaven while the disciples looked on. While the disciples looked on. Let's actually read a part of that. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let's begin at verse 9. Acts 1, 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. As he ascended or was taken up, he will return in the same way, in the clouds, bodily, visibly to come back. Then, when he does come back, those who are on the earth will also be taken up. 
those who are on the earth will also be taken up. First Thessalonians. What Jude said in Jude 14 is also similar to what is said here in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm sorry, Jude 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In 17, if we are alive at the time of the return of Christ, the coming of the Lord, as it says in verse 15, it says in 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What Enoch and Elijah experienced was a forerunner or foretaste of what Jesus experienced and what some of us, some of the saints will experience when we are taken up upon the return of Christ. Now, furthermore, let's return to Genesis 5 from 5.25 to 28. 5.25 to 28, Methuselah is the son of Enoch and from Methuselah, we have Lamech. Lamech, and then from Lamech. Notice, we have a pause. We have a statement made about Lamech's son, Noah. Verse 29, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Listen here. In verse 29, he called his name Noah. The name Noah in Hebrew means rest. It means rest. So if Noah's name means rest, he tells us why he named him rest. He named him rest because this one shall give us rest. This one. Now, just as it was with Genesis 4, verse 1, when Eve bore Cain and she said, uh, I have gotten a man-child from the Lord, right? And she was happy about the birth of, of Cain. She was happy about this, probably, most likely, because of Genesis 3.15. She knew that her male descendant, Eve knew her male descendant, would be Christ. As well, I think that's what's happening in Lamech's case in Genesis 5.29, Lamech knew that Noah, among his sons, Noah was the son who would be the ancestor of Christ. Not his other sons and, and daughters, but Noah specifically. That's why he says, this one shall give us rest. Not that Noah himself was going to be the savior of the world. Right. However, typologically speaking, figuratively speaking, right. he was the savior 
in the sense that he was the only one, he was the preacher of righteousness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in an evil and adulterous generation. He, along with seven others, eight all, they only were saved in the great flood, the worldwide flood. So in that sense, Noah was a savior, but he was a savior in a type, but not in the actual sense of true eternal salvation. Yet he was the ancestor of Christ. This is what Lamech, looking to the future and prophesying, believes about Noah and asserts about him. He'll give us rest. He says rest, he says, from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. This means that Lamech knew Genesis chapter 3. He knew the truths of Genesis chapter 3. That God cursed the ground and he cursed the ground by implication because of man's sin. He not only cursed the ground and brought about uh, the punishment of death on man and animals from the death of the animal, animals in Genesis 3.21, but also the ground was cursed. It says in 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Lamech knew these truths. He knew what happened in Genesis chapter 3. He knew why it happened. He, he knew all of that. That's why he's looking forward as a prophet to that day of restoration. He's looking for the new heavens and the new earth. And if he's looking for the new heavens and the new earth, he knew that it would be the descendant of Noah that would provide the way of the faithful to obtain that new heavens and new earth. That's what his hope is. That's what his rest is also. His rest is not earthly rest. His hope is not earthly hope. He knows that he's going to die. He knows that his ancestors have died. He knows that Noah will die. He knows that people die. So our hope is not in this world. Our hope has to be in a world to come. It has to be an eschatological future world. The new heavens and the new earth. Second Peter chapter 3, 8 to 13. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He was anticipating that. Now, let's reiterate two points from the New Testament. For one, that our redemption is related to the redemption of the heavens and the earth. We find that in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. We'll read 18 to 25. Romans 8, 18. 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope also for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This passage is basically a commentary of Genesis 5.29. It's a commentary of Genesis 5.29. Creation is groaning and moaning. It is like uh, it's experiencing the pangs of childbirth until now. He's saying this figuratively. He's not saying it literally in that creation has a will or that creation is a person or that creation has a soul because he says in verse 20, not of its own will. That's Paul saying creation is not like people or, or nature. The ground is not like people. So it does not have a soul or image of God like people. Yet it is under a curse because of people. And it does grow thorns and thistles. There are natural evils that occur, natural disasters, earthquakes and tornadoes and everything like that happen. Right? And that's happening all because of the entrance of sin in the world and the curse that God placed on man, animals, and nature. And Paul says that this will be restored, creation will be restored when our adoption as sons, and in this context, verse 823, adoption as sons is not talking about our initial adoption, but talking about the final adoption. Initially, we are adopted now. We are justified and in Christ now. He's talking about the final adoption in verse 23, the redemption of our body. When our physical body, our body that is mortal, when it becomes immortal on the day of resurrection, that's going to be the full redemption of our body. He's speaking of that day. So when we have that day of resurrection for our bodies now, our physical bodies the creation will also experience a complete renewal, a complete recreation, renovation at that time. That's what Lamech was hoping in. He was putting his hope in that. Furthermore, let's clarify what we said about rest. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews 4, 1. Rest. Rest, according to this passage, is not merely physical rest. Physical rest is only in anticipation of eternal rest. Hebrews 4.1. He's recalling the wilderness generation under Moses, what they failed to understand, refused to understand. Verse 1. Therefore, let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. Good news preached means the gospel preached. The gospel preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. What's his argument here? He says the generation of the wilderness in, in the time of Moses had the gospel preached. And by that he means the same gospel that not only Moses preached to the people, but that Moses' predecessors, that is, Abraham preached, that is, Noah preached, Enoch preached, Adam preached, when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That same gospel was preached to the generation of the wilderness, and yet they wouldn't believe it. He says, Moses was holding out rest for them. Joshua gave them rest in Canaan. He, meaning he gave them peace. He gave them lack of warfare after they conquered, lack of warfare, and they had an abundant land. That's the kind of rest Joshua gave them. But David, coming four or 500 years after Joshua and Moses, in 1000 BC, David still preaches to the people to enter his rest, God's rest. What is this rest that God has that he has not given to Lamech. He has not given to Noah. He has not given to Moses. He's not given to David or even Joshua. What is this rest? They had rest in some sense, but the rest that he did not give them in the full was the eternal rest because the eternal rest is for them to experience partially, just as it is for us to experience partially now, but fully later. As it says in Romans chapter 8, 8, 18 to 25. And even here he says to us, enter that rest. He's calling on us to enter that rest now. And then he also says, verse 9, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The rest we enter now, which Adam did, which Enoch did, and Noah did, Moses, Joshua, and David, and all of us, when we do that now, it's only anticipatory for the future rest that will last forever and ever with God in the new heavens and the new earth when our bodies are reformed and the whole creation is reformed, never to experience sin, evil, and death again. That's all implied in Genesis 5, 29. Then lastly, it says in verse 32, Genesis 5, 32, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It does not tell us exactly at what age these three sons were born. Some have thought that they were triplets. Some have thought that there might be a difference of a few years. It does not tell us here explicitly all that we need to know is that he had these three sons. 
He had no more. He had no less. He had no daughters. He had these three sons. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.